0: Hey, what's up you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. Always good to start the morning with little uh, Jesus Jones, if you guys remember that song. was that, New Wave from like uh, 90s or whatever? Um, anyway, uh, like I said before, my name is Bobby. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in week two um, of a sermon series where we're going through and dissecting the book of Esther. Um, So if you were here last week, and if you recall, Pastor Burt went over the the beginning of this story, right, which starts out in Persia, uh, where we have King Xerxes, right, and he's ruling and reigning over Persia and all its provinces, and he decides to display, like, the opulence of his kingdom and his power, that he's going to have a six-month-long party and celebration with all his officials, Right. And during this party, he gets a little tipsy and he makes the uh, decision that he would like his queen Vashti to come out and commands her to come out so she can be paraded around and all his officials can gaze upon her beauty. Uh, Vashti decides that she's not having any of it and she refuses, right? And as a result, Xerxes banishes Vashti from the kingdom. Not soon after he makes that decision, he regrets it a bit. Uh, He falls into a little state of depression, a little sadness, and uh, his officials see, oh, you know, poor Xerxes is upset. Uh, We need to do something to cheer the king up. So they decide, hey, you know what? Let's gather a bunch of virgins from all over the kingdom, and we'll bring them to Xerxes, bring them into his harem. And then out of those women, he can choose the one he likes the most as queen. Um, And then we landed that um, Esther, uh, who is Jewish, who is the niece of Mordecai, was made queen, and she becomes queen. And I just want to address um, with this story, and I think it's, it's important for the narrative, that this is, this is a dark story. It's a very dark story um, if you look at it. And sometimes, as believers and as Christians, we have a tendency to sanitize the Scripture. Um, Maybe take a very Sunday school children's church veggie tales approach to some of these biblical stories. Um, you know, how, how many of you have been around, you know, children's church or Sunday school, perhaps when you were young, or maybe like even here or another church? Um, and if you've been to like maybe a nursery, like in a church, there's always like nice murals or like maybe paintings or imagery or pictures of Bible stories on the wall that, that resonate with kids. Um... Do you guys have any imagery that comes to mind? Any story? Like, call them out. You have like, what what would you see on the wall? Noah's Ark, right? That's the one that everybody's mind goes to. Mine as well. So you know, you I, I often like you know ask myself. How come like when, when we're looking at those murals, right, we see a nice, you know, nice ark floating on the water and there's some giraffes and elephants and they're all cartoony and smiling and Noah's there with his family and there's a nice sunset and a dove flying around. But, um, you know, how come nobody takes the time to draw in the hundreds of thousands of dead bodies and dead animals floating in the water? Why don't, why don't we do that? It's, it's missing from the story. And I know it's a bit silly. I know why we don't do that, obviously. We're dealing with children. And and I I might argue that, um, you know, at a certain age, they can probably understand that stuff. But it's left out of the imagery of of Noah's Ark, right? That's very common. And maybe some of you, you know, were were raised in church or went to Sunday school or, or, you know, have seen the Veggie Tale series and the stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Noah's Ark and and Esther, you know, have this place in your mind that is a very cleaned up version of what actually um, has taken place in the story. But if we read what's in front of us and we read the Scripture as it states, and you don't really even have to read through the lines too much, we can see what's going on in this story. The story begins with a queen being vanquished for refusing to be paraded around as sexual property, for men to gawk at and lust after. And because of that, she's exiled. And then we have the officials of the land gathering young virgins from all over Persia, Young virgins, these are teenage girls. Whether they want to or not, they are going to be brought into Xerxes' harem. And their first sexual experience is going to be with a man much, much older than they are. It's estimated that when Esther married Xerxes, he was in his 40s already. And then, right, after they've had this wonderful experience with the king, They're going to be carted off to a second harem, never to be heard from again. Unless, of course, they particularly pleased the king in a specific way. And then if he happened to remember their name, they would be called back for a second time. That was the hope for their life. And I know that's a bit uncomfortable this morning to think about in church. But this is the story as it's written. And you have to remember, Esther Esther is Jewish. Her culture is completely different than this. She is used to, right, in her culture the marriage of one man and one woman and yes they were arranged marriages back then, but no make no bones about it, the bride and the groom and the family did have some consensus and say it wasn't, you know, always hey you're just marrying this person no matter what, but even if that was the case, right, there was the chance for relational growth and love in this committed relationship that was that was bound, right, under their culture and that was all stripped from Esther, right? And I will say this, right? Esther is definitely 100% better off than any of the other girls that she was brought into that harem with. She does become queen, so her fate is definitely a lot better than the rest of those girls. But if you stop for a second and you think about what Esther had to go through to get where she is and put yourself in her shoes, I can empathize a little bit. A little bit, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a male, so I can't fully empathize that. But, but women in the room, you can, you can empathize a lot more with Vashti, with Esther, and, and what they, they've had to go through, and this is how our story starts, with severe, severe trauma. That being said, um, we're going to pick up our story here, and I'm going to read through a lengthy portion of Scripture here, okay? Okay. Um, I'm not going to stop and break it up. We're going to discuss it after the fact, but I'm, I'm going to read the whole chapter of three. Hopefully, all your Instagram brains can handle that. Um, we're, we're going to try it. Just try to stay with me, but we're going to read through it and then discuss it after, all right? So we're going to pick it up in Esther uh, chapter 2, verse 19 through chapter 315. It says this, Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem, as we discussed, and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when she lived in his home. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigdana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded, But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the empire of Xerxes. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim to determine the best day and month to take action, and the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. Is everybody still with me? Anybody sleeping out there? Right here. Yeah, we're good, all right. Almost there, let's go. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they may be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited into the royal treasury." The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do as you see fit. So on April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers, the governors of the respective provinces, and the nobles of each province in their own scripts and languages. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the the king's signet ring. Dispatchers were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all the Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day." This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those that killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all the peoples so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. And the king's command and decree went out by swift messengers, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa that king and Haman sat, then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion." That was a lot, I know. Hopefully you stayed with it a bit. Let's um, break this story down. There's a lot to digest here and a lot to break into. Um, So after Esther becomes queen, Mordecai, her uncle, winds up becoming a a palace official. Um, He hears a plot by two of Xerxes' guards um, that they're planning to kill Xerxes because they're unhappy with him. Now, Now, Mordecai, he's shrewd. And he's wise, and he knows how to use his informa- the information he has, and he knows how to use his position as well. And he also knows how to use Esther, and he does use Esther for his own personal gain here. Um, what happens is he goes, he goes to Esther, and he says, Okay, look, Esther has more influence with the king than I do. Let me tell her what den- went down. It'll be received better. So he tells her, Esther tells the king, gives Mordecai credit. He actually writes this down in the history book, and Mordecai banks some serious equity right, with the king that he could use at a later time. During this event, Xerxes promotes this official named Haman to number two, second in command only to Xerxes, and every other official in the kingdom is required to bow down before Haman. Mordecai refuses... To bow before Haman. Mordecai is an official. He's required to bow before Haman at the king's command, but he refuses to. Now, you, like me, you're going to be tempted to believe that the reason that Mordecai is not bowing down is because it has something to do with an offense against God. Because, you know, he'd he'd be disrespecting God if if he bowed before Haman. But the text doesn't say that whatsoever. The scripture doesn't say it. But because of, you know, if you know biblical stories, you may recall Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where, you know, they refused things at the king's order and brought God into it. Um, But that doesn't happen in this case. There's no mention of of God whatsoever in his decision not to bow. And in fact, um, there's nothing written in Jewish law, there's nothing in the Torah that would forbid Mordecai from bowing down before an official whether they were Jewish or not. It just doesn't forbid it. In fact, Mordecai was uh, accustomed to bowing down before Xerxes. So, you know, what was going on here? Doesn't say that Haman was wearing any idols or anything of offense uh, whatsoever to cause Mordecai not to bow. And um, I also wouldn't speculate that this has anything to do with Mordecai's personal pride. Uh, There's nothing in his character that we read that would suggest that this was a a superficial issue between him and Haman. So what's going on? Why isn't he bowing? Well, it says that Haman is an Agagite. And Agagites were ancestors, um, whose ancestors were actually ancient enemies of the Jews, right? So this, this group of Agagites who Haman descends from, not, this is not Haman himself. Haman himself um, didn't kill any Jews at this point, but his ancestors, his ancient ancestors, had been against Israel. Mordecai recognizes this in his nationality, and, and he decides that, hey, this is, you know, Jews don't bow to Agagites. Because of the history, because of the past, we don't bow to them. And this issue is cultural. It is cultural. It's not religious. It's not spiritual. It's not personal. It is a cultural reason that Mordecai refuses to bow. And this act puts every single Jew in Persia in great, great danger because Mordecai refuses to bow. And there were a lot of Jews in Persia during this time because 100 years earlier... King Nebuchadnezzar had banished many of the Jews out of Israel and many of them went out and they settled in Persia. And they settled in Persia, actually under, under Xerxes. They were allowed to hold political positions. They were allowed to hold office. Um, they were allowed to do business freely within the kingdom of Persia. And this is the first time actually in the Bible where we see the nation of Israel living amongst a people who is different than them in a different culture where they are not in bondage And they're not in their own nation, but they are free to live as they please within a culture that is completely different from theirs. So, then the officials keep asking Mordecai, look, what's the big deal, man? Like, just bow. Like, forget if you have a thing with Haman. Like, Xerxes ordered this. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Like, you need to start bowing. But then Mordecai tells them the reason. He says to the officials, he's like, look, I'm not bowing because I am a Jew. He does the thing, right? He reveals who he is, the very thing he told Esther not to do and reveal that she's, she's Jewish to King Xerxes, he reveals at this point as to the reason why he's not bowing. And again, this is still very much cultural. Mordecai's not bringing God into this or invoking the name of God whatsoever. And of course, Haman gets extremely angry. He gets angry at Mordecai, but when he learns the reason for Mordecai not bowing. It becomes more than about Mordecai. So he's like, it's not enough to punish Mordecai. Mordecai's not bowing because he's a Jew, because this is cultural. Now it doesn't say that any of the other Jews in, the, in, in Persia were refusing to bow before Haman, only Mordecai. But Haman takes it a step further. He's like, look, this is gonna get out of hand. These people live in our land, they have different laws, they have different customs than, than what is common. And if if, if Mordecai doesn't bow, it's just gonna be systemic. And that's a theme in the book, right? It's the same thing that happened with Vashti. If you remember, um, the officials said to Xerxes, you have to punish Vashti because if you don't punish her, then all the women, you know, they're gonna get some moxie and they're they're gonna rise up. We can't have any of that. It seems to be this theme in Persia that's going on where they, they just don't want things to get out of hand. And then finally, Haman does this strange thing where he casts lots to determine the best day to slaughter all the Jews. And that date winds up being a year later, which will play into the story later on. But I mean, if you think about this, it's kind of silly, right? Um, he's sending out all these notices that on a specific day, a year from now, everyone's going to have to kill all the Jewish people. And that's what sends the city of Susa into like this confusion. Because most of the people are like, You know, what? these people are my neighbors, right? They're my friends. They hold, they haven't really done anything to us. Like, why are we going to slaughter all these people? But they were going to because this was signed and initiated by the king. Um, And then Haman says to the king, look, if if you let me do this, I'll put 10,000 sacks of silver into the treasury, which, by the way, he's going to get from all the Jewish people he kills as he plunders them, and he's going to take that bounty and put it into the treasury. Um, Xerxes signs off on all of this, and... uh, Everyone's just left in this state of confusion. So there's a few things I want to point out here that are important to this story. The first one being that Esther is put on the throne and has gone through what she's gone through and become queen before the Jewish people are in any kind of jeopardy. Okay, there was, there was no reason or need for her to become queen yet. There's, you know, seemingly no purpose in it. She was established in a position before there was any need for her to be there. The second thing that is common in everything that we've read last week, everything we've read now, and everything we're going to read in the, common, in the coming weeks is that God is absent from the story of Esther. He is not present. He is not mentioned once. No one mentions any, any sort of spiritual practices. Anything that is mentioned is really just Jewish culture. He is completely hidden and completely silent throughout the entire book of Esther. And I would say, too, that the Bible does this, right? It makes us deal with things in the world as they are. It just doesn't deal with things of spiritual nature alone. It makes us face the facts about the horrors of our world, the terrible things that happen, war, famine, pestilence, murder, death, sexual abuse. It makes us face the facts of those things, and then it invites us to assume that God is at work in all of it. In all of the wickedness of the earth and all of the disaster, it invites us to assume that God is at work, which brings me to a verse that many of you may be familiar with. So it reminds me of this verse which is Romans 8:28 that says and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. We love that verse. I love that verse as Christians, right? God works everything together for good. But do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Not not that that just God uses the good things in your life or the good things in the world to work things together, but he actually uses the terrible, horrible, disastrous things in the world, in your life, and the world of others to accomplish his purposes. That's a big God. That is a, a big leap of faith to have, that God can orchestrate things that he did not cause, that he is completely against, but he can use those things for an ultimate good. Big, big God. But that might be disturbing to you as well. It's disturbing to me if I think about it um, that God's prepared to use such means to bring about his purposes and the defeat of evil. But you know what would be even more disturbing? If all the bad things that happen in the world and all the terrible things that happen in your life and in the life of those you love were incapable of having any meaning or any significance whatsoever. That would be more of a tragedy. Do any of you remember um, the movie Signs? Mm-hmm. feels like we're living it right now with everything we're blowing out of the sky, right? Um, so in, in case you, you haven't seen the film, um, what's going on here very much reminds me of, of that movie. Um, it, was, it was written by M. Knight M, <laughs> M. Shyamalan. always this guy's name. It kills me, right? Um, but he's that guy who writes all these, these movies where it's like all this meaningless stuff is going on. And at the end, you get like this big reveal. Um, well, in Signs, it's, it, this is a story about a preacher or a pastor who has lost his faith. And in the midst of all that, aliens have landed on the Earth, um, and they're not the good kind, right? They're the kind that are killing people and taking over the world. Um, And it stars Mel Gibson, uh, who plays Graham, uh, who's this ex-preacher, and Joaquin Phoenix, who plays Merrill, which is his younger brother. And there's a scene where they're sitting watching TV. They're watching TV, and they're seeing all this horrible stuff in the news going on, and the world's falling apart, and um, Merrill is completely distraught. He's visibly upset in what he's seen. And he looks at Graham and he says, Graham, it's like, give, me some, give me some comfort. Give me some comfort here. Graham leans over and he says this. He says, um, he says, there's two types of people in this world. There's two groups of people when they experience something. Group number one, they see things as more than coincidence. They see signs. They see miracles. And they feel that there's someone or something out there watching out for them. Group number two feels that in any situation, it's 50 50. Things could work out good, things could work out bad. But deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they are alone. They are on their own. And that fills them with fear. And then he leans in, he says, You have to ask yourself, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person that sees signs, that sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or is it possible that there are no coincidences? And then he, then um, Merrill goes into this completely ridiculous story how he's at a party and he was chewing a piece of gum and this girl leaned in to kiss him, but he got rid of the gum and she throws up all over the place. And he's like, if I didn't have that gum in my mouth, she would have thrown up right down my throat. He's like, I'm a miracle man. And then Merrill leans into to Graham and he says, what kind of person are you? Graham looks at him and he says, do you feel comforted? Meryl says, yeah. He says, what does it matter? So I want to ask you this morning, what kind of person are you? Same question posed in that movie. Are you a person that's going to see signs and miracles in the midst of their trouble? Or are you going to believe that God isn't present? Or maybe he doesn't care. Or maybe that he's not involved. Um, they say hindsight is 55th. Uh, 2020, right? Hindsight's 2020. That's often how I live out my faith with this hindsight 20,20 faith. Um, the past couple months, I've had a lot of really rough stuff going on. From December until just a few weeks ago, a um, lot of bad things I was dealing with. And um, a couple nights ago, while I was finishing up this sermon, I was speaking to a buddy of mine who goes to church here. And he asked me how I was doing. I was saying, hey, you know, I told him all the, the stuff that was going on and how God delivered me from it and how everything kind of worked out. And I was praising God, and I'm like, you know, thank God. He's so great and he's so wonderful. And he was like, you know, that's great, man. I asked him, I said, how, how are you doing? And he started to tell me some real heavy stuff that he was going through in the midst of, like in it right now. And as he's telling me all this stuff, heavy stuff, not light stuff that's going on in his life, he's telling me smiling. He's got a smile on his face. And he gets done telling me, and he's like, he's like, I'm, I'm not worried. He's like, I, I know God has my back. I know God has a plan. He's like, I'm utterly convinced that it's all going to work out. And in that moment, I just felt so convicted. Like, this is the way that we need to live our faith as believers. Not just when we've been delivered of it, but while we're actually going through it, that we can have comfort and that we can have Peace church, we have access to so much more than what we we experience. We really, really do. And if we choose to, we can walk a higher path. We just got to choose to believe what God says, what his promises are. We can have comfort in the trouble because he's working in the mess, even, even if it appears that he's silent. I spent the past two, three months with extreme stress, anxiety, and fear that was completely unnecessary and didn't do me any good in the long run. That was my choice, right? And it's easy. It's easy to celebrate the faith and the victory after you've been delivered from it. But what's more powerful is when you're suffering through it, being comforted, knowing that whatever it is, even on the largest scale of the world, God is working these things together for good. So where are you this morning? What mess are you in? What's not working out? in your life? What tragedy is there? Do you believe that God's plans for you are ultimately good, as it says, if you put your faith in Him, that He's going to work it all out for good? Can you believe in the non-miraculous miracle? That God is working behind the scenes to bring it all together, and like I said, that His plans for you are good. Maybe it's time to start, because God He's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life and in the world. Whether you're, you're on board with that or not, and whether you choose to take comfort in it or not, he's still going to work everything out together for good. So do you want to choose to go through things racked with stress and anxiety and fear? Or do you want to choose living comforted, knowing that someone, that God... The God of the universe is out there looking out for you and has your best interest in mind. It's not easy because as believers, we, we, we exist in this world of, of the now and the not yet. Okay? We exist in our situation now and the future. The kingdom of God is a, a future event. It's a time coming when everything's going to be great, and that is a future event. But the kingdom of God is also here now. We also have access to it here now. And as Christians, it's this tension of the now and the not yet. And that's where we find Esther. This is where Esther is living. She's living in the now and the not yet. The now of being queen, the now of having this power, this influence, but not knowing what the heck the purpose was, why she had to go through all this trauma, why she is in this place. She has no idea. She's living in the now, but the not yet is coming. And next week, we're going to pick it up right where we left off here in the story. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you for today, God. Thank you that we can gather here this morning and hear from your word and what you have to say, with us, say to us, Lord. Even in scriptures, God, where you are silent, Lord. Lord, I pray for each and everyone here, Lord, that you would give us increased faith, Lord. That we would tr- put our trust in you and believe your promises, Lord, when it says that the plans that you have for us are good lord jesus that you are working all things out in our life in the world all of it you are using for an ultimate good lord give us faith and give us peace jesus as we enter into worship now i just pray you prepare our minds and our hearts lord that we would praise you god that we would that we know lord that no matter what happens even if there are situations in our life that we brought on ourselves lord that are bad You will work together for for good, Lord, if we put our faith in you. We love you. your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give, or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word TRUENORTH to 77977 on your cell phone, and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.